one, stay there in uh, Colossians 3. Dawn's already prayed for us, um, so we can jump on in. I don't know why, but royal photos of royal kids mucking up tickle me. I get a kick out of them more than I should, I think. But I think, and I think the reason, a little bit of self-reflection, I think the reason I get tickled by royal kids mucking up is that I'm encouraged that good parenting outcomes have very little to do with the kind of resources that you have or how many staff you have to look after your kids and how much money or privilege you enjoy. And it has a lot more to do with the character and the convictions of the parents. Uh, One of my favourite royal kid picks from a few years ago wasn't so much of a mucking up kid, but of a confused kid. Remember this photo of George going off for his first day of school? And he knows it's an important day, like it's probably been a big day as a part of the family. But he's kind of looking up at his dad saying, we're just going to school, right? With all these photographers and there were helicopters overhead and there was like live TV coverage of his walk down to school. He's like, we're just going to school. Because here's the thing, at the age of four, there's no way that he has fully grasped who he is and why people would care about him starting school. But even though he hasn't grasped it fully, the reality still stands that he is third in line to the throne. Whether he's grasped it or not, he is still Prince George. Whether he has grasped it or not, his great-grandmother is the queen. His grandfather will be king. His father will be king. He will be king of England. And what's going to change for George as he keeps growing up is that his understanding will fall more and more into line with who he is. His life will grow more and more to reflect the reality of that identity. It's not that as he gets older and looks more like a prince, then he becomes more of a prince. No, he is a prince. He's third in line to the throne and he simply grows more and more to reflect that reality. Last week in Colossians, we saw the extraordinary reality that Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily, brings us to fullness when we put our faith in Him. That is, in Jesus we have all the fullness of God's blessing. We have all the fullness of God's love. We have all the fullness of what God has for us as His people. Paul is writing this to the Colossians to say to the false teachers who come in who are making big promises of if you want fullness in your Christian life, you need this technique or you need this practice or you need this discipline, or you need this added extra, and then you'll break through to the next level. Paul is saying to them, no, no, no. Jesus has done everything. That's what we saw last week. When he died for your sins on the cross, he took all of your sin. He defeated all of God's enemies. 
Everything that's needed to be done, he has done. And he didn't just make it possible for you to be saved and to belong to God and be adopted into God's family. He didn't just make that possible, he made it a reality. He did it. He didn't just say, I've done my part, now you do your part and you'll enjoy the fullness. He says, you have the fullness. Jesus has done it all. And the danger for the Christian, I think, for you and for me, as it was for the Colossians in the first century, is to think, fantastic, it's all of grace, Jesus has done it, don't fall back into the old way of the law or to different religious practices or whatever that was the shadow, therefore I don't need to worry about what my life looks like. Paul says to them in chapter 3, no, 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 if this is the reality, you're adopted princes into the family of God, you need to grow more and more to reflect that reality, to enjoy and to live out and to reflect the fullness of God's blessing and salvation and the life that He has given you, more and more. The Bible never speaks about you needing to earn this wonderful reality belonging to Jesus and being in God's family. It doesn't say if you do this, you'll become more and more a Christian and you'll have more and more security in God's family. The Bible says if you are a Christian, if you've received Jesus as Lord and Saviour, if you've trusted in His death on the cross to forgive your sins and defeat your enemies of death and Satan, to bring you back to God with eternal life, then that life starts now. And that life lasts forever. And that is who you are. And so be who you are. Be who God has made you. Grow more and more in your understanding of Jesus. It was the image of the tree from the last couple of weeks. It's not that you need more things to add on to Jesus and His fullness. You need to grow more and more in the fullness that you've already been given, the life you've already been given, the identity that you've already been given. Live, speak, think, more and more in a way that fits with Jesus and His kingdom. That's what chapter 3 is all about. It's the same pattern that so many of Paul's letters follow, which is so helpful for us. The challenge and the encouragement of the Christian life, it doesn't come in chapter 1, that's not where we start. These are the things that you need to do. Okay, this is what you need to get busy with. This is what you need to grow more and more in. No, he begins with the reality of Jesus. The bigness, the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus. So that by the time he gets to this is how you should live, it's because you are enraptured with who Jesus is. That your heart has been captivated by Jesus' sufficiency and his supremacy and all that he is. And so that you are living the Christian life out of a love for Jesus, rather than out of a desire to earn or achieve 
or secure the love of Jesus. Having trusted in him, keep trusting him. And this is what the real Christian life will look like if you're growing more and more to reflect the reality of what God has made you. So here's our sermon for today. Two points. Jesus is your life. So live a Jesus lifestyle. Jesus is your life, so live a Jesus lifestyle. Jesus isn't a part of your life. He's not an aspect of your life. He's not a compartment of your life. He is your life. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here is your reality. If you are a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. You've died to your sins. And having been died, having died to your sins, you are alive to God. And your life is now hidden with Christ. Your life is so wrapped up with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And what's true of him is also true of you. Christ died, you died. Christ rose, you rose. Because you are in Him. Your life is hidden in Him. Your life is completed and wrapped up with who Jesus is. Jesus is now at the right hand of God in heaven. That is your reality. So set your mind and set your heart there. our friend Rory Shiner uh, wrote this great little book of what that means to be in Christ Uh, and this little book is a very helpful one about that identity, that reality of what it means to be in Christ. I had a little video that talks about it but we're going to skip that, just a heads up to the the bloke on the computer, Uh, we're going to skip that for this morning. Rory talks about the fact that if you are in Christ, it's like being in an aeroplane. If you go to the airport and see a plane, if you're going on a trip, what's your relationship to the plane? Do you need to be inspired by it? Do you need to follow along behind it? No, you need to be in it. So that what's true of the plane is true of you. The plane goes up, you go up. The plane makes it to the destination, you make it to the destination. And we won't think about the alternative. Right? If you are in Christ, your life is hidden in Him. What's true of Him is true of you. And so reflect that reality more and more by setting your mind on those things. Setting your heart, your affection, your desires on those things, the things of Jesus and His kingdom. To set your mind on heavenly things sounds very lofty and esoteric, doesn't it? It's not thinking about the architecture or the geography of heaven. We're not talking about what you would like to do for all eternity. That's where our minds go, isn't it? Heaven for eternity, beaches, long, long walks, 
No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the personal presence of God. About being with Him and enjoying Him forever. And so to set your mind on heavenly things is to set your mind and your heart on Jesus. And this isn't that sort of esoteric, disembodied spirituality. It's not about levitating, being released from bodily existence. What I love about this chapter is that setting your heart and mind on Jesus and heavenly things is extremely practical. It's about challenging and changing those things that don't fit with who Jesus is and what his kingdom is all about. It's about clinging to and chasing those things that do fit, that do reflect Jesus and what his kingdom is all about. So if Jesus is your life, then you need to live a Jesus lifestyle. What does it look like to set your mind and your heart on things that are above? Well, Paul gives us this very helpful picture of things that we need to then take off and things that we need to put on. Have a look at what he says to take off, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew, Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. If you've died with Jesus and been raised with Jesus, then these are the things that you need to put to death with the rest of your past way of life before you were a Christian. These are the behaviours, these are the attitudes that, that are at odds with the Christian life. Because these are the things that each reflect a rejection of God. These are the things that reject, uh, that reflect a rejection of God's good design and His good desire for humanity in His world. You can see that if you explore some of those things, you can see in living such a life, how it's an expression of rejecting God and His good design and His good desire. Think about sex. God creates sex for our good and for His glory, to reflect His love for us in Jesus, to be expressed between a a man and a woman in the union of lifelong marriage. And yet we reject God's good design and his good desire and make it about us. Sex is about me, it's about my appetites. 
right? God gives us material things to provide for our needs, to produce thankfulness. And what do we do in rejecting Him? We use them to totally replace Him. We don't need God. I have things. Idolatry. To make ourselves the centre of the universe and to be dissatisfied with what God gives. Do you see? Do you see how those attitudes and actions aren't just God waving His finger at us? They reflect a wholehearted rejection of God's good design and His good desire for people. And because of that, Paul says, these are the very things that God's just judgment is coming against. These are the things that provoke rightly God's just anger. And that's why they have no place in the Christian life. It's why they have no place for the person who's living for Jesus and his kingdom. For the person who's seeking to reflect more and more the reality and the identity that they have in Jesus. If you are a new creation, being made into the image, being remade into the image of your creator in Christ, then God's perfect future has already begun. His great renewal project is already well underway. And your life is to reflect that renewal as well. In the everyday attitudes and actions and thoughts and words and deeds that you should want to line up with Jesus and his kingdom. Well, these are the things that you should take off. What are the things then that you can put on? in order that you might reflect that reality and that identity. Have a look at verse 12. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do you see how Paul again grounds all these challenges, all these commands of what ought of what we ought to chase and what we ought to cling to. See how he's grounded again in the identity and the reality that God has given you? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, set apart for God and his purposes, dearly loved, the objects of God's affections, that's you. And so clothe yourself, your life, in these things. 
It's extraordinary, isn't it? That we together are described as God's chosen ones. We weren't just happen we didn't just happen to kind of fall under God's scattergun love, like kids trying to get under the sprinkler. Now we were particular recipients of God's decision to love, to redeem, to beautify, to hold on to forever. And so that's who we are. And so more and more, friends, cling, chase, pursue the things that fit with that reality, with that identity, compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, and patience. And pursue the forgiveness that those qualities demand. Pursue the love that binds them all together. Pursue all those things that are just like what God has done for you in making you his child and giving you your life. In fact, all the things that the Bible calls Christians to reflect and to live out are also those things that are used to describe God. It's why we call the category godliness. He is compassionate and gracious. He is supremely kind. He humbled himself to share our life and to die for us on the cross. He is supremely gentle. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. He is infinitely patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance and faith. So set your heart and your mind on these things. Every few years, generally, <clears throat> at the request of my wife, I do a T-shirt clean-out. I'm told it's necessary. It's also painful. It's painful, right? Because some of those 20-year-old T-shirts are quite cherished. We went to dinner at a friend's house the other night, and I put on the, the shirt, the jumper that I bought with him at Paddington Town Hall in 1996. And we, I went to his house, remember, remember this shirt? <laughs> no, he didn't remember. <laughs> You've got to hang on to them. No, sorry, that's the, opposite of, that's the opposite of the illustration. You don't have to hang on to them. <laughs> it's painful because some of those T-shirts that have lost their shape and become a bit too transparent, they have emotional baggage attached to them, like that shirt I bought with my friend at Paddington Town Hall. They have a story. And that story is my story. It's connected to me. And as much as we don't like the things that Jesus calls us to get rid of, some of those habits, some of those characteristics, some of those attitudes and actions are very tightly connected to who we think we are 
to our story, to our history, to our relationships. And so it can be very painful in tearing them away from ourselves. It can feel very slow. But it's also very necessary. Because when you stop, like I do with my T-shirts, and hold them up to the light and go, yeah, that's really got to go. There's too much yellow on that white T-shirt. Right? It's obvious that they need to go. And when you hold up those things that Jesus says get rid of and those things that Jesus says put on, it's obvious, isn't it, the things that you need to get rid of? It's not particularly complicated. It's not particularly difficult to kind of see which are the bad things and which are the good things. It can just be a little bit harder to do it. Because of our emotional baggage, because of our personal history, because of our habits, because of our hearts. And so how do we do it? What do we need to do to put off more and more and to put on more and more? Well, we go back to the beginning. Set your heart on things above. Set your heart on Jesus so your heart looks more and more like his heart. And as that happens by God's word and spirit, more and more, your heart will reflect what Jesus wants it to reflect. And you will desire more and more of what he desires. I feel like if gentleness would be something that a lot more people could grow in and that Christians could more and more reflect to one another and to our world, we'd be in a lot better place. Too often we think of something like gentleness as a weakness, a doormat. when we talk about gentleness, even when we use it in everyday language, it's usually about a person in a position of relative strength who uses that relative strength not to crush or to damage someone, but to care for them, to look after them. You know, when you hand all your precious possessions to a removalist and you say, be gentle, you don't want them to break it. When you hand a newborn baby to their older sibling and you say, be gentle, what you're saying is don't squash the baby. Right? When you're giving someone feedback and your capacity, you have the tendency to tear them down, to rip them apart, what do they often say? Be gentle. Gentleness, like Jesus, 
about taking strength and power and so controlling it and exerting it towards someone in order that they might be cared for and nurtured, not broken and crushed. I love this picture of gentleness. I think there's a picture. Sorry, I'm all over the place, Levi. Where's the baby and the soldier? The medical, the army doctor with the baby. Someone with power and strength using it to nurture and care. That's the kind of gentleness that Jesus shows. A smouldering wick, Isaiah says, he doesn't snuff out. He doesn't say, well, that, that wick is finished, get rid of it. That person's not very impressive, get rid of them. He says, that smouldering wick is valuable, that person is precious. And he, by his word and spirit, takes the smouldering wick of a person who's, who's stumbling through life, who feels burnt out, who feels rusted out, who feels useless, who feels used. And instead of like our society does too often, cast them aside, put them in a different place, out of sight, out of mind, so the rest of us can get on, Jesus says, no, no, no. By my word and spirit, I will keep fanning that flame. even into all eternity where they will shine brightly and burn forever with the heat and the light of his love. It's just one example of how those godly characteristics that Jesus so perfectly lived out are meant more and more to be reflected in the the individual and the common life of Jesus' people. And so given the reality, given your identity, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on Jesus. That his character, his words, his life and death and resurrection, his promised future, his desire and his direction that he's given you in all its fullness, you might overflow with to those around. Why don't we pray and ask him to help us? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the fullness of life that we have in Jesus, who is your fullness. We ask that you would so help us by your word and spirit and by the encouragement of our brothers and sisters to so set our hearts and minds on Jesus that we might be different, holy, 
set apart as your loving and gracious people who follow and are changed by a loving and gracious Saviour. Make us more like Jesus, we pray, for his sake. Amen.